From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. As the announcer man said, Father Brian Mullady is in the house ready to take your questions. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205-271-2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985 and you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching on YouTube, or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our hostess, he is every Thursday, the aforementioned Father Brian Mullady. How are you? I'm just okay. It is fine. So do you think that this is the that this is a, a big holiday, a big feast day with the IRS? <laughs> well, I guess if the IRS celebrated feast days, it would be a big feast day, yes. It's St. Matthew the Apostle, and... Previous to his apostleship, he's a tax collector. Absolutely. Well, it's said in the gospel that there was one in Capernaum that Christ found him, and Capernaum lay on the at the uh, the place on the busy road of Damascus, where the province of Antipas met the province of his brother Philip, and therefore there was a custom house at the lakeside. And tolls and dues were collected at the usual of this custom house. And the publicans, in the gospel sense, were agents of the head publicans. You know, everybody scratch each other's back up to the big kahuna, who in turn were the representatives of those who bought from the state, in this case from Antipas, the right to collect taxes. The demands of their masters and their own insatiable greed caused the agents to exploit the opportunities offered by an ill-defined taxation system and also the ignorance of their victims. This conduct, together with their professional association with people who uh, were Gentiles, caused them to be considered almost outcasts in society. And, of course, Christ is invited to eat with them, which is a social taboo, and they bring all kinds of their former associates to the banquet, hence the Lord's statement, uh, I did not come to call the just but sinners. And, of course, the Pharisees were very disapproving of all this, and in the custom of the time, they certainly didn't sit at the table. What they did was stand at the door. 
so they wouldn't become defiled. Now Matthew, when he relates this, his call in the gospel, is not ashamed of this past. In fact, it's in light of this past that he appreciates the grace of God even further. And what I always find interesting about the call of the apostles is they don't seem to hang back. Christ says, follow me, and they leave everything and get up and follow him. And that's certainly the case with Matthew. In addition to this, of course, St. Matthew is the author of one of the Gospels. And the 19th century developed a theory concerning the authorship and priority of the Gospels, where the German scholars especially emphasized, and this became almost canonical in the 20th century, that Mark was the first Gospel. And there were several reasons for this. First of all, it was the shortest. Secondly, it has predictions of the passion in it and, and the structure of Jerusalem. And of course, these people did not want, in the 19th century religion, Christ to be considered in any sense a prophet who predicted the future, so they didn't feel that um, these uh, prophetic gospels could predate the destruction of Jerusalem. And then also, of course, the only, this is the only gospel in which there is no reference made to papal primacy, to Petrine primacy. Now, more recently, scholars like Scott Hahn and many others have discovered this fact, and they've done research on it, and they believe, first of all, that it was developed by the Germans to politically undercut any interest in authority of the Pope. And also, um, there's been several books written, one in particular, about the priority of the Gospels, where this does not correspond to the ancient manuscripts. Now, of course, admittedly, the ancient manuscripts generally were written several hundred years after the Gospels, but they're certainly closer to the Gospel writers and the time and the traditions concerning their priority than we are. So the traditional order that they espouse is that Matthew, of course, was written in Hebrew, and it was for the mission to the Jews. Luke is written in Greek, and he's also a physician, so he's a historian too. And so that was written for the Gentiles. And then when Peter was imprisoned in Rome, remember he was basically under house arrest, he was asked to comment for the Caesar's household on the difference between Matthew and Luke and their similarities from his own personal experience. And Mark, if you recall, was the scribe for Peter, just as Luke was for Paul. And so as the scrolls were unrolled, 
Peter commented on the similarities and seeming discrepancies between the two. And that's why, because Peter was doing the commentating, there's no references to uh, Peter and Petrine primacy in Mark. And uh, also, there's no infancy narratives in Mark because Peter wasn't there. So Matthew participates in the traditional way of looking at things as the author of the first gospel, not the third or fourth. And uh, his gospel was written for the Hebrew mission. It was written to try to convince them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And it's interesting also that the Jews did not accept the testimony of women. So you'll notice that the infancy narratives are related by Matthew from the point of view of, of Joseph. The Gentiles accepted the testaments of women, and so the infancy narratives are related in Luke from the point of view of the Blessed Virgin. They, it's not so much that they disagree with each other, but they see the thing from two different angles or two different points of view. But whatever the point of view, their purpose, as with the whole gospel, is to emphasize the Messiahship of our Lord. And it's also Matthew's lot that at least by tradition, he was sent to preach in Ethiopia, and there's still monuments to him there in the ancient Ethiopian church, and he was martyred there. So today we celebrate the feast of this absolutely wonderful and interesting saint who participated very much in the physical presence of our Lord, was instructed directly by him, and saw his tax collectorship as a proper vehicle for the grace of God to work, despite his profession. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, EWTN's Pro-Life Pulse is your weekly recap of the top pro-life headlines moving our nation and the world. The mainstream media missed. Visit EWTNnews.com slash pro-life and sign up today. Stay connected. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. First up today is Linda. In Chicago, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Linda, you are on with Father Brian Mullady. 
Hello, good afternoon. Uh, what does it mean to cooperate with grace, and what are some ways I can do that? All right. You have two basic effects, results, of receiving grace. The first is justification, and it's referred to as operating grace. And in this, God moves us and we allow ourselves to be moved. The second is called cooperating grace. And in this, God, it's the like justification to begin with. God moves us. We allow ourselves to be moved. But then we, in turn, make our choices where we move our faculties the intellect, the will, the passions, the body, etc., in light of the justification which we've received. So, cooperating grace is our participating in the action of the Holy Spirit. And the primary moving source there is always the Holy Spirit. God is always first. But we have our little individual part to share in this. And that's why in, our house, in God's house are many mansions, many vocations, many different levels of participation. And why heaven is a hierarchy. Uh, the one who most cooperated in grace. Um, of course, Jesus is God. We're not talking about Jesus the human being who most cooperated in grace is Our Lady. Now, how can you cooperate? Just live your life from a grace-filled perspective. Try to let all your judgments and all your sufferings and all your triumphs all be motivated in light of God's inner nature and how he moves the world back to himself. So that you are part, in a sense, a tiny little part, compared to God's part, which is huge. But you are a tiny little part in experiencing and living out saving grace. So in every meritorious action, in other words, action by which we can go to heaven, there are two that act, two that cooperate. You have God the whole, and Holy Spirit, but then you have me and my little share. So that's the best way. God bless you, Linda. Thank you so much for the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-3986. Cheryl is a first-time caller driving through the great state of West Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Cheryl, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Oh, hello, Father. I'm so happy that you took my call. I hope you can hear me all right. I can. Okay, Father. So, Father, my husband and I are struggling with um, a question and it's to do with our Catholic faith. Our children, our adult children, 44 and 41. Now, one is uh, engaged and... Um, hasn't planned when to get married. And the other one is married, but not legally married, well, is legally married, but not in our Catholic state. So the question my husband and I are struggling with is, can we 
go on a family vacation with them without like like sharing uh, sharing a condominium with them and it it's just sinful for us as parents like where do we draw the line with regards to advising our adult children on what they're doing is not in keeping with our Catholic faith. All right, of course you can go on vacation with them. You're a family. Uh, There may be some trouble if you want to go to Mass during that vacation, but they may decide not to participate. Well, just leave it up to them. You know, they have to answer before God for that. Regarding where you draw the line, well, you draw the line at our faith and doctrine. So, uh, I my personal opinion is that the worst people to try to advise someone on how to practice their religion or not practice their religion is a family member. I can assure you as a cleric, uh, neither one of my siblings, as a priest, neither one of my siblings goes to Mass, and neither one is married in the church. But I'm the worst possible person to make any observations concerning that, because it, for one thing it gets all messed up with whatever they may like or dislike about me as a person, because we're so close. And, and secondly, they highly resent the fact that I'm trying to help them, and instead it makes them worse. So if they ask you, then you have to be very honest about what you think. Not brutal, but honest, and what you think would be good for them. But only if they ask you. And, you know, again, you have your religion, they have their experience of religion. You just have to let people... Well, if you don't push them too much, especially, I'll tell you one real, really helpful thing, is look happy to be a Catholic. <laughs> because I, I have told people often in my missions that I sometimes sit in the back of the church and watch people come to Mass on Sunday, and from their facial expressions... They all look like they were being drawn to Dachau to be executed. <laughs> be happy to be a Catholic. Don't shove it down people's throat. And they'll be wondering why. All right. And if, they, if and when they do ask you, then you have to be honest about what you think. But don't push it. Don't try to force people to do something. I can tell you, they're, they're so, they know what the truth is. And if you try to force it down their throat, that just makes them more adamant and sticking to what they know not to be true. God bless you, Cheryl. And one nice thing you've done, you've got to have a whole army of people listening to today's show that will be praying for you and your family. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, here's a good question that kind of ties into your uh, to your uh, 
monologue at the beginning of the program. Lucy wants to know, does the church teach that people have different abilities of enjoying the beatific vision? Uh, yes, because the prin- I, I often ask this in my classes on grace. What's the principle of merit in Catholicism? And what many people say is how hard something is. No. It's not how much suffering it causes you. That's a very negative view of religion, and it's not Christianity. It's the love with which something is done. So because there are people who love God more, they're open more to um, God when he does come to give them his vision, his knowledge. And we all receive the same, as far as the same infinite God, but some people's potential or capabilities, because they love more, are open to his nature than others. So again, in my house there are many mansions. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. Mark wants to know what the difference is between a blessing from a priest and a blessing from a layperson. Oh well, you know anybody can bless someone. Fathers can bless children and should. Um, deacons can bless people, but the priestly blessing is so connected to our Lord that it has a special meaning. It's not so much that it's better, it's just more identifiable with our Lord's action in the world, because the priest represents Christ. Um, Jason wants to know, we get this once in a while, Father, he wants to know, if he leaves out a sin in confession, is his confession, is his confession still valid? All right, well... It depends on the reason he left it out. (laughs) If he left it out because he was ashamed and didn't want the priest to know, yes, then he isn't confessing all of his sins and the absolution wouldn't be valid. If he left it out just because he forgot, uh, remember we have this thing we say at the end, for these and all the sins I cannot now remember, I am most heartily sorry then all of those things are covered under the confession. Uh, because he meant and intended to confess everything. So it, in that case, the absolution would be valid. Because one is through no fault of his own. However, there is a teaching in the church now. It's uh, a teaching that many moralists think is true, it's what the Council of Trent teaches it, actually. But scrupulous people shouldn't be told this teaching. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the places where sometimes it's better not to tell the whole thing because some people will take it wrongly. But that is, if you should remember a mortal sin from the past, not that you need it to be forgiven, because you've already been forgiven. But the manner this is put is, for the sake of the integrity of the confession, you should mention it in a future confession. 
833-288-3986. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-EWTN. And remember, you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Next stop for us is the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Suzanne is in Pennsylvania watching us on YouTube today. Suzanne, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Thank you. Hello, Father. Uh, good afternoon. I have a question for a friend of mine who was raised Presbyterian. Um, she married a Catholic, and when they asked his priest, to marry them inside the Catholic Church, he said that it involved too much paperwork. So they were then married inside her Presbyterian Church. Um, after her children were raised, she converted and became Catholic. She's studying the Catechism, and now she has a concern whether or not the marriage in the Presbyterian Church was indeed valid, and if she is receiving communion and it being a sin. I actually um, sponsored her into the Catholic Church, and she's 100% on fire for the faith. She loves being Catholic. Um, I think she was a little embarrassed to call for herself, so I told her that I would call and ask. Well, didn't they ask her if she was married in the Church when she became Catholic? Uh, I, I don't believe so. Yeah, I was going to say that the first thing that came to my mind is we have a we have a failure to ask the right questions on the front end here. Well, we have it. She, especially somebody who is of goodwill like her, this is easily fixed, right, Father? Uh, Yes, but um, again, marriage law is quite complicated sometimes. So, her her spouse was Catholic or not from the first marriage. This is the only marriage. They've been married well over 40 years. But he is Catholic. Yes. And they were not married in the church. No, they were married in a Presbyterian church by a Presbyterian minister. Well, we do not look on that as a valid form of marriage, because if one of the people is Catholic, they're bound to the Catholic form of marriage. So she'd have to get an annulment and say the promise is over. It doesn't have to be a big deal. You don't go to the church with the flowers and all that stuff. You go to the rectory with two witnesses. (laughs) But they're going to have to be married in the church. Mm -hmm. And yes, she is right. She's been receiving invalid communions because she hasn't been married. If they've been having sex, of course. Some people are past that, so... So the sacrament of reconciliation and a convalidation from the pastor can make this situation right, correct? Uh, I'm not sure it's the pastor. I think it's the bishop, yes. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, once the once the annulment takes place. Yes. Okay, yeah, that, that's right. That would be the pastor. That would yeah, do it. and it's important, Suzanne, that you go through that annulment process, but it will be very, it will be fairly swift because there's a a clear uh, break of form with the Catholic spouse not following Catholic uh, form and 
in that marriage. Well, and if you've been married for 40 years, you show there's stability in the marriage. So, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it would be easy to do. Yeah. Marriage cases, it's like the guy that told you it was too much paperwork. Yeah, that's that's heartbreaking. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Yeah. Does that does that help, Suzanne? A Catholic. Yes, it does. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for the phone call, and tell her to rest assured there's a light at the end of the tunnel for her. But she has to make the effort. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like she's a zealous person that would do just that. Yes. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Couple of open lines and plenty of time for your calls. Next up is Edward in Fort Wayne, Indiana, listening on the Sacred Heart Radio app. Edward, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Father Milady, thank you for call- taking my call. I have a question. Um, you had written a review on a book called The Sacred Monster of Thomism about Reginald Gergul Lagrange. Yes. And I, I loved it, and I got the book, and I love the book. And I know there's a lot of controversy about uh, the, the theological battles that went on back then, but um, it seems that he's been quite vindicated. And in that book, it shows clearly that he had utterly destroyed and showed that the philosophies, especially of Burton and Blondell, were not Catholic, and they did not, they're not compatible with Catholic teaching. And yet, we have today uh, articles, plenty of articles on the Internet, showing that even Pope Francis embraces some of those theologies and philosophies of Burton and Blondell. And I'm wondering, how can this be? What can we do? Well, when it comes to intellectual matters, <laughs> we can disagree with the Pope about them, you know. I mean, they're not uh, infallible teaching or anything. If it's, you know, I, I agree with this philosopher or not, not that philosopher. Uh, also, um, I wrote, if you recall in that review, I don't agree with Garagou Lagrange, and I think he's a um, translator of Cardinal Cajetan, and I don't, I don't think it's Cardinal Cajetan's commentary in the Summa is correct, but the thesis of that book was that our post-Vatican II theology is so silly and in such a mess that we need to return to people like Garagou Lagrange, who were at least interested in ultimate matters in true philosophical terms. And that would even be people like de Lubac or you know, anyone before Vatican II, except for Rahner, who had his own philosophy, it seems. But um, what we needed to do is return to an academic kind of approach to theology that was real and not silly and not postmodern and not liberation theology and all that business. So if you read the review, that's pretty much what I said. Um, Gerogu Lagrange was a, a very controversial figure, and especially after Pius XII died, because he had persecuted people like de Lubac wrongly, it seems now. But um, he himself went through, because of this, being treated like a pariah, and that wasn't right. He was an intelligent person, he was a good religious. If, if anything, his 
biggest flaw was he was very much in favor of Vichy France. But of course, a lot of Catholics were because they hated the Third Republic. And a lot of things were caught up in politics and they didn't particularly know much about Hitler and what he was doing. So they figured, well, we, why not just make a pact with the devil? It's better than the Third Republic, so that's why they um, did that. But yes, he was tried very much to be a faithful commentator of St. Thomas. I don't particularly agree that he was, but at least he was interested in what St. Thomas was interested in. And he used the Thomistic sources available to him at the time as uh, in, in a very academic way. Um, what we need to do is, well, I, I know that Gary Lagrange has resurfaced now, especially the Dominicans in, in Washington, D.C., and I think that they might better spend their time not trying to revive the tomes of the 50s, but in trying to actually read the master again. And in other words, I, I've always been of the opinion that the best commentator on St. Thomas is St. Thomas. And if you're asking about the Pope, look, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Middle Ages, there was a Pope who forbid the Dominicans and Franciscans to teach in universities. So the friars, both orders, immediately began litanies of the death of the Pope. <laughs> and he died within a month. <laughs> and so in the Middle Ages, they used to say, beware the litanies of the friars, <laughs> like that. But I mean, we don't have to agree with everything the Pope thinks. People in the past haven't agreed with everything the Pope thinks. Vatican I was basically called to answer one specific error, and that was Gallicanism. The fact that the Pope didn't rule rule the church, but the kings did, or the parliaments, or whatever. And when the Pope made a, a decision that it had to be approved by the lay authorities in order for it to take effect. And that's why they were so emphatic about um, papal definitions are, are of themselves irreformable. They were actually trying to speak to the civil authorities. Thanks, Edward. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-3986 is our toll-free number. Julia's up next, a first-time caller in Louisville, Kentucky, listening on Holy Family Radio. Julia, you are on with Father Milady. Hi. Um, I just have a quick question. Um, if someone has had a married person, has had a couple, has had eight miscarriages, in three and a half years, is it is it a sin to continue to um, be open to potentially having more pregnancies? No, why would it be? I guess the, they continue to fail. Well, yeah, but they might might strike dirt, pay dirt once. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they probably need to see it. I assume this person's seen a doctor, 
as to why they're unable to conceive. Sometimes they don't know, but sometimes they do. And there are remedies you can take that would help you to be more open to conception. But no, of course not. If at first you don't succeed, try again, uh, as long as the woman's life isn't being threatened. And, uh, boy, eight miscarriages in three years, did you say? Wow. Yes. Wow. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, there's nothing wrong with trying to become pregnant, then. Yeah, and this, uh, it creates a little army of intercessors for you. Absolutely. Yeah. God bless you, Julia. We will keep uh, that whole situation in our uh, prayers. And, and you may pass along uh, information about NAPRO technology. Um, if you just uh, Google that, N-A-P-R-O, NAPRO technology, they're doing amazing things with uh, situations like this. Next up is Melissa. She is in the Republic of Texas today, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Melissa, you're on with Father Milady. Hi, Father Milady. I have a situation where I'm a practicing Catholic. My husband and I got married civilly, but not sacramentally. Uh, found out that in order for me to receive confession and communion again, my husband needs to get the annulment for us to get married in the church. So he's going through the tribunal right now with the diocese. It probably won't be till next year that we can get married in the church. Until then, it breaks my heart I can't go to confession. Um, but I know it's a sacrifice that will be, you know, much better when I can. During communion, what is the proper thing to do for me? Is it to sit in the pew, or is it to go up and get a blessing when I cross my arm? I'm getting well, conflicting answers. Well, the blessing thing was started in this country. Uh, and never, we never did that before. And in other few other places, to, so the people wouldn't feel left out. <laughs> you know, so you, you get something every time you went there. It, uh, many of us feel the blessing thing is kind of odd because you're going to get another blessing two minutes later when Mass ends. But we do understand that some people like to feel more of a part of the thing. Um, I would, I don't know if you've ever watched the Mass on EWTN, uh, but you know, there they have. Um, uh, one of the former sisters said, says, for those who cannot yet receive, not now receive Holy Communion, we offer the following prayer, which is a spiritual communion, really. Uh, you can make a spiritual communion. It's not the same as physical communion, but you can do that and then just pray that uh, they'll hurry your annulment up so that you can be free to confess and to go to communion. God bless you, Melissa. We'll keep you in our prayers as well. And a little encouragement for you. I was in a similar situation back in the day. My late wife Susie and I uh, was not able to enter the church at the Easter Vigil because of uh, uh, waiting on an annulment. And as it turned out, uh, the following December, uh, was able to enter the church, did so at the next RCIA classes meeting, night at a mass and had uh, two individuals that were in a similar situation in that subsequent class that were greatly blessed by going through the experience and seeing what it was like to come out the other side. So 
Uh, God has ways of working out wonderful things in every situation, even if sometimes it seems like a bit of a hardship. So God bless you. I'll keep you in uh, my prayers uh, personally. Next up is Gloria in Indianapolis, Indiana, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Gloria, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much, Father, for what you do. I, I get so much knowledge from you, and I appreciate it. My problem has to do with, again, with an invalid marriage that is approaching. I have a granddaughter, 16 years of Catholic education, and, and I used to babysit with her and taught her the rosary, and we used to pray and talk about Jesus, and I never thought that she would be one who would reject her faith. But my understanding is that she is going to be getting married outside the church. I don't know whether it's in a Protestant church, whether it's going to be in a park or on a boat. I have no idea. I have not been apprised of that information. But I have been given so much so much uh, suggestions and information. Don't go to the wedding. You can't go to the wedding. Go to the wedding, but not the reception. Uh. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, I don't want to turn my back on her. I want her to know that even though right. I cannot approve of what she's doing, I still love her, and I will continue praying for her. So sure. uh, what is the right thing to do? Well, I, I understand your predicament because... I've been de dealing with this question for a number of years of various people, and I've read a few. It depends on how rigorous you are or, you know, how light you are concerning it. Um, I, I would not go to the wedding myself. Of course, I'm a priest, so I... When, when you, but when you go to a thing like that, you're approving of what happens by presence. And I just couldn't in conscience do that, plus the fact that my calling would hold the church in some kind of responsibility. I've often recommended to people that they attend the reception because that doesn't approve of the wedding, but it um, does approve of the people. However, I know moralists who say, no, there's no difference. That still approves of the wedding. Well, I have to say it's hard for me to imagine that because I, I think it's just a party, really. And um, your presence there is more or less just to support your loved ones. It doesn't necessarily make a statement about their marriage, although, of course, it's pretty close. Um, some people say just don't do anything. Well, I find that difficult too because a lot of people will just reject you and not want to see you again, especially if you're close to them. So I've always tended to think that the middle ground was attending the reception. And they obviously know what you think. You don't have to belabor it. But... Um, uh, you know, by, by telling them you don't agree, but you're just coming for them. But they obviously know what you think. But, um, again, it's it's something I think every person has to decide for themselves based on the situation. The thing I think would most border on approval, though, is attending the wedding. 
got a very special edition of Catholic Answers Live tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. It's coming to you live from the Catholic Answers Conference. Uh, the guests this, uh, this week are tonight, uh, Jimmy Aiken in hour number one and Tim Staples in hour number two. Bob is next up. He's in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Bob, you're on with Father Brian Malady. Well, first of all, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I've got a quick question, uh, Father. Uh, the opening antiphon and the communion antiphon, during the week we say those, and I'm just curious, how are those particular prayers generated? Because they just fly by and... I'm just curious how, how, you know, if you could provide some insight on those and how I can get more out of them. Well, for the most part, not in every case, except for the most part they're generated from Scripture, although there are antiphons that aren't. But um, they're meant to place the liturgical celebration in its proper place. And especially today when you have all these cuckoo songs they sing uh, that have nothing to do with the feast or nothing to do with Lent or nothing to do with Advent, when everybody feels they can choose, it never used to be that way. Those things were canonized for a reason because it, 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 they were intimately connected to whatever the theology of the feast was. And they're not, and, like, randomly selected. I mean, these no. were poured over before they were put together, right? Well, it took centuries to put them together. And um, if you're in the Gregorian settings for these, the real Gregorian chant, it's interesting that the theological word is most emphasized by the chant. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we do allow hymn singing now, um, which we did before, but on, on a limited basis, usually at the end, after things were over. And now, of course, they have the entrance song, or the, well, I guess they call it the gathering hymn now, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. Uh, it's not the gathering of the community, it's the entrance of the celebrant. But anyway, that being said, it, it, it's, uh, it's not where some guy just decided to go out and put stuff on a hymn board, you know, every week. They were very deeply rooted. I was listening to the old Sound of Music the other day, you know, the musical, not the movie with um, Julie Andrews, but the stage play. And Richard Rogers composed a nun's chorus for the wedding, but they used the then entrance antiphon for the wedding mass, which was Gaudiamus omnes in domino, let us all rejoice in the Lord. And uh, it was very beautifully done. The Gregorian, same Gregorian melody that went to that uh, particular text was used for almost all the major feast days in the old church. Or the Requiem, you know, Eternal Rest, Grand Thelma, Lord, Perpetual That was developed over centuries with the chant. It had different musical settings. You, know, you can think of Faure or Mozart or Vittoria or, or any of those people. 
but the text always remained the same. And Father Jennifer wants to know why the assumption of Mary is a dogma. The assumption of Mary is a dogma because some people questioned it. So it was the Pope made a decision to proclaim it as a dogma so no one would question it. Of course, there's very little, there's no scriptural evidence exactly, except the general theme of the virgin clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, an apocalypse suggesting that Mary has a body in heaven. But there's a long tradition, um, probably, the, but again, it's very late, that was the origin of that particular doctrine with St. John Damascene, who wrote in the 700s, uh, 7th century, I think. Uh, he was actually present during the Muslim invasions. And uh, he relates the fact that when Mary died, now there's also a debate about whether she died or not, but that partially it's because of the way you define death. Um, Mary certainly didn't have a corrupting death, because remember, she doesn't have sin. So her death, if she experienced it, would have been more like falling asleep. You know, Snow White with the rosy cheeks in the older form, not the present one. Uh, you know, in the sleep of the living death. And um, so the tradition was that when she was put in the tomb, uh, the apostles were all miraculously transported to Jerusalem, and they and they sang a dirge over her. And then Thomas wanted to see the body. They opened the tomb, and it was empty. So they concluded God had, by special privilege, taken her to heaven. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless. <laughs>